Welcome to the ninth episode of the Mixology Collection podcast. If you're new to the show, my name is Damien. And for those of you that don't know me, uh, my name is Roop. And for those of you that do, he's in now. It's uh, number nine, Damien. How are you getting on, man? I've missed you. <laughs> do you know what? Yeah, I've missed you too. It's been too long, hasn't it? I know. It's. I think we've needed to take a break. You know, there's with so much yeah. going on at the moment. We needed to kind of compose ourselves, kind of deal with normal day life. Uh, but I'm really excited to be, to be back today. Yeah, man, you're absolutely right. Um, it's been up and down for everybody, hasn't it, really? Um, every day is a kind of a different news day and where we are with regulations and what we're allowed to do, what we're not allowed to do. Yeah, it's not been the easiest, has it really, to settle into to a rhythm. But um, more importantly, brother, um, how's the little yeah. one doing? <laughs> the little one. She is just a bundle of joy. Every day waking up, seeing her smile just kind of makes everything so worthwhile. But the nights when she doesn't sleep, oh God. <laughs> <laughs> and that's painful. But yeah, you wake up again and it, it just, yeah, you forget all about it. So no, it's, uh, it's, again, it's, as I've said time and time again, it's been such a blessing to be at home. So you've been busy with Campfire as well, haven't you? Yeah, man, it's been really good. Um, shout out to Campfire Trailer, man. We've been, uh, we've been really lucky. Uh, we've got our street food event now. Every week, Campfire Cookout on a Saturday. On a Sunday, we do brunch. Um, and we're expanding into different days of the week all the time. We're doing spirit tastings now. We've got, God, man, we've got a coffee, uh, got like a little mini cafe turning up. We've got an off license that we're building. There's loads, man. We're, we're super lucky to be able to do all of this in, in the middle of this kind of like quarantine and lockdown. So, it's, yeah, it's really it's really good, man. It's really busy. But, I mean, I know there's a lot of people out there that, that aren't, aren't in the same way. But, like I said, man, I'm, we're blessed. So, that's that's it, really. No, absolutely. But, and, um Today I'm really excited. We're, we're oh getting man, I know, I know. I'm like <laughs> super excited. We're not just going international, man. We're like going for the big boys. It's like, we're just getting bigger and bigger with it, with the people that we're getting on, Damien. How, how are we doing this? This is incredible. Um, I don't know, but I'm, we're super blessed. And I think, you know, you know, it's taken a while for us to coordinate our diaries, um, but we're so lucky. Um, well, I'm just going to introduce, we've got a Lyndon Pride from Dante, New York. Hey, how are you, gentlemen? Great to be on here with you. Thank you for being on. Appreciate you're an incredibly busy human being. So um, thank you for, for taking the time to, to talk to us. How's things over there, man? How, how's the weather over there? Right. Yeah, well, it's funny, you know, I, I, I'm sitting here on Friday morning um, in the city and, um, you know, we're still being held to uh, outdoor dining. So the, the weather forecast today is no rain. So um, it's good news for us. And last night we had a, a flash storm that came through and washed out our whole dining room at around 8.30 in the evening. So, uh, you know, we have umbrellas and things, but they're, they're no match for these, um, this subtropical weather we're having in New York at the moment. So, forecast is good um i have to say since i i haven't really paid as much attention to the weather since i uh, last lived in london i think um that was more kind of uh i think i was more looking out for the sunshine and enjoying uh the little the little patches of sun we used to get but i'll tell you this summer in in the city i've been so focused on on the rain so anyway it's looking good for this weekend Oh, that's great. So it's it's fair to say by the accent that you're not actually from New York. I'm part of the Commonwealth, much like yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to ask the question, but, but but where are you really from? Yeah, uh, I'm I'm from Sydney. I'm I'm Australian, uh, but I've I've been living in um, in New York for the last ten years. Before we kind of get to um, Dante and the work you've done there, it's, we always like to kind of know our guest's journey. 
Um, so I, I kind of, yeah. from looking at LinkedIn, I see that you were quite involved with educational uh, quite early on in your career. And I just wondered, where did you start in hospitality? It's interesting. I, I first got started in, in hospitality uh, as a result of um, spending time in restaurants with my mom. She was a, uh, a food writer um, and she used to go and do these um, uh, restaurant reviews. And, and as a as a 15-year-old, I used to tail along with her and, and sit there and, and be marvelled at, at the, the operations of these amazing restaurants and also as a young boy, just the, the free food um, aspect of it. Um, <laughs> and and um, uh, when, I was, when I was in my final year of high school, um, I said to her that I wanted to learn a little bit more about the restaurants and asked if she could, you know, help me, help me get in with somebody. And, and um, she set me up with an interview with an Australian chef um, who owned a restaurant group called Rockpool. Um, and I started working with started working with them at the age of 17. I wanted to, to join them. Uh, Neil Perry was the name of the chef. I wanted to join them in the kitchen because I was fascinated by it. And I remember the first day I turned up there, he said to me, Lyndon, you don't want to get involved in the kitchen. Why don't you, um, why don't you go behind the bar and help them stock the wines and, and get a feel for the, the bar side? And um, after about a week of helping myself to tasting all the dessert wines in the fridge and, and uh, <laughs> realizing that, 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 uh, that the work was a lot less... Um, uh, labored in the bar I, I quickly took on um, learning the craft of the bar with them um, in Sydney so um, yeah I mean I kind of got into it at a very young age and and uh, I, I decided at that at that point um, after spending about a, near, a year at Rockfall that I uh, wanted to um, issue the bartending side of things and, and I moved to London actually and uh, and saw the opportunity to kind of pursue, uh, um, I guess, a, a, an, an initial understanding in the, the world of the cocktails and, um, and London was kind of the big, the big bright star on the horizon. So how, how old were you at that point then? What, what, what year were you, are we in now? I'm, I, I moved to London in 2000, so I was, I was 19. Um, and I spent a couple of years living there, actually. I mean, Neil introduced me to um, a chef who was running a, a, a spot called Pharmacy in, um, in Notting Hill. Yeah, yeah. Um, and which was and which is a great spot, and and um, they connected me with a few other a few other uh, uh, guys in the industry, and and I ended up working, being in London for a couple of years. Um, worked at Hakkasan uh, when it was opening under uh, Dick Bradshaw did the, the cocktail list there initially, and um, ten rooms and a few other spots, and and. I mean, at that time, the early 2000s, London was the epicenter of, uh, of the, the revitalization of, of the cocktail, you know, and Lab Bar was obviously in full swing and um, it was just a really exciting time to be uh, in the UK and a part of that, that scene. Um, uh, and, and I guess off the back of that, when I, when I came back from London to, the, to Australia, I, I kind of wanted to... Um, uh, get back into my studies i thought okay i've had my my trip abroad i want to go back and start um, university and and i did that but I, I think that what informed um my my shift towards some of the educational was um you know i guess the the continued intrigue in the industry and i wanted to learn more about the academic side of it to kind of legitimize it to myself i guess i had been kind of drinking myself and um uh, around london for a couple of years and i thought you know I, i'm enjoying this but maybe there needs to be uh, a little bit more depth to it and so that's when i started pursuing some of the the, the academic side of things but like you say that was a that was an incredible time 
um, incredible time to be in yeah. the industry, to be in London, to be fair, to be anywhere really in, in, in the UK. Um, that, yes. uh, that's roughly there or thereabouts is when I first started as well. And it's just, just watching all of these people grow around us um, and all these names coming through. It was incredible. Yeah, man, it was, was, it was amazing. So who was, who was one of your most memorable people when you first touched down? Like, obviously you mentioned Dick Bradsell, shout out Dick Bradsell, but for yourself personally um, back then, um, well, I guess, I, you know what, because, because of, I was young and, and impressionable, it was, it was, it was more about some of the, the, uh, the, the entities initially that really impacted me. I mean, I remember, uh, I was working at, um, space called, uh, the view bar, which was the seventh floor on top of home nightclub. And, uh, it was like just there on Leicester square. And at every given moment I would, uh, on my break, I'd be up at lab bar and sitting there trying to break down the, the intricacies of how many stirs needed to go into an old fashioned and all the things that I thought were so important at the time. <laughs> did he muddle the ice? Did he muddle the sugar cube or did he use sugar syrup? I mean, all these things were like very pressing and, and very yeah. important to me at the time. We've all, we've all <laughs> been that there. brown sugar or white sugar? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, I mean, Lab Bar had a huge uh, impact on, on me at the time and, and, um, uh, you know, that I think that what they created and, and the foundation they set was so special and they had those great ashtrays that we all stole and I think I probably still have a couple <laughs> of them somewhere stored away. Um, um, but yeah, it was, it was really the lab bar and, and, then, and then starting to learn about um, uh, the drinks program underneath Dick Bradshaw um, and Hakkasan that was so in, influential to me at the time. Um, uh, yeah, and, and I guess it was also just seeing how an industry – uh, a cocktail industry, which in Australia was still uh, pretty immature, um, was had such a professionalism about it, and it was kind of um, uh, there was people actually making a career out of it. There were there were there were guys who had kids who were still working in the bar industry. And for me, as a nineteen year old, I thought, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't been exposed to that before in Australia, and I think that that kind of inspired me um, to think, well, there's an opportunity to um, to give this some some more breadth if I take it back to Australia. So um, when do you think the bar scene started to mature over in Australia? Because I think food-wise, it's been a big a culture where food has been very important. Um, so I'm surprised to, to hear that maybe the drinks didn't catch up at the same time. Yeah, look, that's a, it's a, it's a really good point. You know, the Australian food scene is still, I think, one of the, one of the great um, um, industry leaders in, in culinary around the world. But, yeah. you know, at this time in the early 2000s, the cocktail industry was, was well behind. You know, we had um, um, stick drinks. Everybody was muddling Kaiproshkas and, and, and making Cosmopolitans uh, kind of in those early 2000s. But I think that at that time, Australians were able to go and do a two-year work visa in the UK, um, and it, it couldn't be renewed. You could go for two years, and once you've done your two-year stint, you had to go back, and that was it. Um, and so we see we saw a lot of Australian young Australians go and, and work in London and, and bring their skills um, of the trade back uh, back to back to Sydney and Melbourne. And then at the same time, you had you had English bartenders such as um, uh, Jason Crawley and uh, Mikey Enright and uh, Grant Collins who who all become real leaders in the Australian fire industry. Um, you know, they they moved with their skill set um, to open uh, venues such as the Grand Pacific Blue Room in Sydney, and um, and even work with under operations like TGI Fridays uh, when they branched out in Australia and and Planet Hollywood. Um, um, you know, they brought they brought like what was then one of the big pinups of bartending, flair bartending. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know. <laughs> 
which was which is important because it brought a lot of young people in. But you know that they started to bring that to Australia and, and with the Australians on, on the work visas bringing skills back we started to see much more interest and, and development of the of the Australian fire industry really pivoting off what was going on in London and, and we started to see these restaurants opening um, that were tying in modern Asian cuisine uh, and using the, the botanicals the lemongrass cafe lime and that kind of stuff that you'd see in the food and translating that into the drinks um, and so we started to see our own kind of little bit of our own vernacular there with, with the evolution of those drinks. But it was really based on that relationship between Sydney and London and, and the work visas. So, so I was looking, so in 2005, you were doing lecturing uh, at the Bachelor of Business in Hospitality. Is that purely because of what you learned from being in London? And yeah, yeah. So I started working with um, um, uh, a group called William Blue Hospitality School in, in, in Sydney and... Um, Interestingly enough, they contacted they contacted me to come and to do some cocktail classes because there weren't a lot of people doing um, um, cocktail training, and they wanted to add that to their syllabus. Um, and, and and at that point, I was working in uh, we just opened a restaurant called China Doll, which was uh, based on this kind of modern Asian food and um, and the cocktails that paired with it really nicely. And and so I started doing some um, individual lecturing um, at the hospitality school and. And I realized at that time that all the, you know, a lot of the, the, the cocktail classes that were being taught were, you know, um, outdated and, you know, they were teaching them these very um, um, untop drinks that people weren't ordering. Um, and there was an opportunity to come in and actually teach some more modern trends and, and give a bit more of an insight uh, into what was going on um, in London at the time. And so I started doing cocktail training there and, and uh, very quickly it escalated to be able to kind of do full uh, bar um, set up operations, guest experience um, type training. Um, and what was interesting for me was it kind of, it helped me because I was the bar manager, a very young bar manager um, at, a, at a new restaurant and I was able to teach at the schools and recruit the students to then come and work with us. Um, and, you know, then when I was working in the restaurant, I was able to share what my experience was that week uh, back to the students. And so it was really topical. Um, and it was, it was kind of my yin to my yang, I guess, you know, after after doing two or three days running around the, the, the bar, um, it's nice to come up and be able to present to people um, in the same vein after you've done three or four days presenting to people. It's nice to get away and just go back to making some drinks. How was that? How was that received? I mean, um, coming in as uh, one of one of the, the younger bartenders with new ideas, and you were talking about obviously the outdated ideas of what was going on at that time. Um, what was that like for you? I and mean, how was how were your new ideas received at the time? Well, it was interesting because the hospitality curriculum at the time was, uh, and and the, and the and the teachers who were running it were by and large um, people who had left the industry. Uh, and didn't want to work on the floor in a restaurant anymore and they were usually service professionals or chefs so you know they were then handed this curriculum that said right you need to spend this amount of time teaching them about food hygiene and and uh food standards and this is teach them how to set up a restaurant and then there's also this small component that you need to teach them how to set up a bar and a lot of those <laughs> okay. um, teachers didn't know how to set the bar up you know yeah. they were like they were like just reading it off a manuscript it's like okay well um, the sea breeze is this ingredient plus that ingredient. And I mean, they didn't have any experience in actually making it, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. um, um, so it was what I think they, they welcomed it and they enjoyed it. And I mean, let's be honest that halfway through a, a cocktail training, everyone 
had a taste of a couple of the drinks and everybody starts enjoying themselves regardless <laughs> that is definitely true man and their and their sea yeah. breezes are pretty decent cocktail to enjoy yourself with <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> that, that was literally i think one of the drinks <laughs> oh mate it's great it's a great drink i i, I really want a sea breeze yeah. now <laughs> yeah so so you talked about um starting off with neil uh, perry uh, so when you right. came back you then joined rock pool again how do you get into being a 27 year old and getting the role as beverage director for a group that has 80 venues 3,000 staff i mean it's a, such a large organization it was a great time to come back to work with neil he was um uh embarking on a like a, an expansion obviously this was uh before he'd opened a number of those venues and mm. and the first project that that uh we started working on together and i remember funnily enough he rang me uh one day when i was in the middle of a lecture uh, at the hospitality school <laughs> and i literally saw my phone and, and i and i walked out of the class and took the phone call um uh, was this concept called Spice Temple and, and uh, Spice Temple was based, his food was based on um, like a deep dive into Hunan, Sichuan, Zhangji, like provincial Chinese food where in Australia traditionally when you think of Chinese food, you, you, you what we see is Cantonese, you know, it's, it's, it's more like um, uh, Southern Chinese, Hong Kong, the um, yeah. cuisine you see there and, and, and not this great focus on the dried chili and, and um, the pickled chilies and, and, and these other incredible flavors that you get in other parts of China. And um, so he was launching this, this new concept and uh, it's really hard to eat Szechuan peppercorns and enjoy any type of glass of wine, you know, you can't, I mean, <laughs> unless it's like a, a really beautiful bright Gewürz or something like that. It, it, people just don't drink as much wine with it. So he wanted to develop a, a cocktail program that, that would complement the food and, and um, um, I and and at that time I had I'd been travelling quite a bit in Southeast Asia, uh, particularly in Bangkok, and um, um, you know I was really into these these um, I guess these lighter, brighter flavours that you weren't seeing a lot, as much of in the cocktails. And and um, you know he asked if I could develop a drinks list for for that uh, for that venue, and um, um, we did we did this cocktail is based on the 12 signs of the Chinese zodiac and, and each of those signs uh, we did did a correlating drink year of the rooster the year of the rat and so forth and and so people came in and they they were immediately connected because they're like oh i want to try i'm the year of the horse i want to try my <laughs> year of the horse you know even yeah, though amazing. i don't like pisco or uh you know they, they didn't care what was in it they just wanted to see if the drink embodied what their personality was um <laughs> and so um we had great success with that with that initial concept and off the back of it um um neil opened uh his his much larger uh more ambitious project which was uh rockwell bar and grill um and there was an opportunity there to to do a, con a bar concept that was diametrically opposed to what we'd done um, with spice temple and that was something that was much more american uh cocktail focused more um, about stirred down and and I guess kind of riffing off the uh, you know the the PDT Death and Co um, kind of model that we were starting to see in New York at yeah. the time and and um, um, yeah and I think that obviously we'd had Neil and I'd had long relationship and and starting to bring in some of these interesting trends with drinks he really enjoyed it and so um, uh, yeah it, it kind of kind of escalated quickly in a in a really positive way. So so what inspired you then to look towards America, you know, so far away from Australia. Yeah. What, what brought you there? 
Um, it was 2011, and Neil, we just opened Rockpool Bar and Grill in Perth, and um, that was the fifth. That was the fifth opening we'd done in three years, and um, I don't know. I think it was a it was a time where the American cocktail scene had really, I think, become very very dominant um, um, and very exciting, and much in the same way as London had been in the early 2000s. I really think that the the, the speakeasy kind of um, trend, uh, uh, speakeasy bars and, and so forth had really become very prominent in the way that people were talking about drinks, pre-prohibition and house rules and all this kind of stuff. And, and I, was, I was fascinated by it. Um, and having you know, lived and worked in, in London and, and, and lived and worked in Southeast Asia and, and obviously in Australia, I, that was the kind of the missing puzzle or the thing that had really inspired, was inspiring me. And, and um, um, I've been traveling to and from New York quite a bit and uh, looking for maybe inspiration initially, but then then certainly starting to look for opportunity. And um, I'd met um, uh, one of the founders of um, a group called Abraco, um, and uh, uh, at the Australian Bar Show, I think in 2008, and yeah. we kept we kept in touch. We kept in touch. Um, uh, for a couple of years and and i visited them every time i came came to the states and um they had an opportunity where they were looking to open some new venues and uh that opportunity kind of came to fruition at that time that i was also open to it looking for it so yeah we kind of all came together that's amazing but the, but you were commuting from australia to do that role then yeah well it's funny you know my <laughs> uh my now my now wife but my girlfriend at the time was um you know, i said to her Oh, I just got off the phone to uh, the guys in New York, and they said I could. They have a job for me in a month. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> and the funny thing was, that she, I mean, she she'd been in New York in in two thousand and um, uh, uh, eight, seven or eight, and she was like, "Come on, you got to move to New York." And I was like, "No, the opportunity's in Sydney." And she's like, um, "She." She, she was trying to get me to move to the States at that time and, and I wouldn't. And then finally she comes back, got settled in Australia, really happy. Everything was going great. And then all of a sudden I'm like, there's an opportunity in New York. And she's like, you've got to be <laughs> <laughs> uh, And so I, um, she said, well, you go. And, uh, you know, we just bought it. We bought a property in, in Australia and, and she's like, I'll look after the mortgage and, and God bless her. She's, she, she, she enabled me to pack a bag and jump on a plane. And that's basically what I, what I did. Um, and, and, uh, you know, she came and joined me a couple of years, uh, 18 months later, but, um, yeah, she provided the platform for me to be able to take, make that leap. So this, this, this new role give you really more of an insight in the operational side of running venues and starting from scratch. Yeah. I think, you know, working with Neil and because we were, um, um, opening venues in multiple cities, you know, Sydney, Melbourne and Perth, I, I had to kind of become quite structured in the way that we were articulating the setup of the bars and, and so forth. And, 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 um, uh, and I, I was working a lot on the floor. I was working a lot in, in front of the bar, I guess, in the operations. And um, uh, so moving to the States was really a combination of all those, all those learnings I'd had with him um, and trying to put them into practice. And, um, you know, the job was they uh, Avrico had a venue called Double Crown, which was a, like a, again another modern Asian kind of concept on the Bowery um, downtown in New York. And the goal was I'd arrived in May, and the goal then was to start in that venue and to wind it down um, and to, to closing in uh, the beginning of September, so we could do a quick refit 
and reopen as Saxon Saxon and Parole. And Saxon and Parole was loosely based on what we'd been done, what we'd been doing uh, at Rockwell Bar and Grill. And but it was, okay. you know, Rockwell Bar and Grill was about a, an interpretation of an American steakhouse. And here we were in New York uh, creating an American steakhouse. So I mean, it was. Um, um, there was a lot. There was a lot of similarities in kind of um, you know uh, uh, initial ideas for concept at least and, and, and so forth. So um, uh, yeah, I mean uh, it was a it, it was a very fast, hard learning um, learning um, experience to come to New York and, and start working at that venue and shut it down and reopen Saxon and Brawl. Um, I remember actually on the first day I started with Avrico, walking out of the shift and walking uh, i was staying in the east village walking up second avenue to my apartment and um i stopped at a bodega and I mean, the great thing about america is everything supersized but they had like a one gallon can a can uh, the can was one gallon of heineken beer and i was like this is the biggest beer i could find i grabbed it and i remember like drinking it on the way home thinking what the hell have i done why am i here <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 amazing that's always uh, that's one way of doing it um just yeah. going back going back to what you were saying about um just the organization of it all and uh, of these multiple venues that you kind of had to, to look into all at the same time and i imagine there was a lot of moving parts and obviously you've got to do you've kind of got to wear multiple hats but for, for anyone that's listening in to this for for anyone that's looking to maybe even do half of what you did at the time what 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 is it you would say would what that got you through it in respects to how you organize yourself and and the way you thought about it and the process that you put in place what would you kind of like recommend in respects to that i really think and this i mean this might be an obvious statement but um uh you know i think the foundation of what we do and and what makes what has made so many of these venues successful is is you know that at the end of the day these hospitality outlets are like a binary system you know like yeah. if somebody like either you turn the lights on or you don't either you, you you turn up to your shift or you don't either you uh put the right ingredients in the cocktail um you know or you don't you know so okay. like, as long as you have a system that is in place that's that that is almost like a very clear checklist you know the customer is greeted at the door they're sat at the table and, and they're welcomed they're handed a menu the order's taken, the order's put in the system, yeah. the food hits the table, the drinks hit the table. As long as you tick all those boxes that are really competency, either it, they get sat at the right table or they don't, they get handed a menu or they don't. As long as you, you complete all those basic checklists, people's experience, basic expectation of walking into a restaurant or a bar will be met because you know they expect to be greeted, they expect to get their food on time, they expect it to be heated and made properly and what have you as long as you can tick all those boxes you're gonna people are gonna have a good time and i think yeah. as long as you focus on on getting that competency right then you're, you're you're most of the way there and really what then makes it um uh a, a, an extra special experience is when you add personality uh where you add the little magic on top of that basic competency um and so as long as you kind of focused on training your staff so that they're meeting that that basic expectation of when customers come in then they have the freedom and 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 the you know there's no anxiety in terms of the, the guest experience they can then sort of really add the magic on top of it and so um you know we work very we work very hard at making sure that um uh opening uh the checklists packing down the guest experience we have we have kind of these binary very clear systems um yeah to make sure our restaurant runs the same every single day. And I think that's kind of what sets people and us up for success. 
you, you made that sound incredibly easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it yeah. makes perfect yeah. sense, but and it, right, it, it, it does sense. sound so yeah. easy, but so many people yeah. fail at the first hurdle. Um, in terms of yeah. the customer, it's you know incredible how some people just don't pay attention to those little things. Well, it's it is, and look, I really learned this from Neil without question. You know, it's like I mean, I, I think that if you're using like a lot of that, a lot there's a lot of people that hide behind glitz and fancy yeah. uh, dish creation and cocktail creation, yeah. and it's kind of all bright lights and so. On. And and I don't like I'm not I, when I go out to um, have a meal or a drink, I, I'm not looking for that. I'm actually looking for something genuine. I want to connect with people, and I and I and I want to I want to enjoy quality and i want to enjoy um uh something that's artisanal and 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 that's really thought out and i think that um when you work with something that's it's very hard to do simple well i guess that's the point <laughs> yeah it's yeah. very hard to do simple well and it requires attention to detail good quality ingredients um and somebody caring um and i think that you know if you if you strive to do simple well um you know and you get there then then people are going to want to come back because because um there's quality associated with it um and you know that's that's what neil taught us and that's certainly what we look to do it um you know here at, Dan at dante and, and and with everything we do so, so tell us about how you came about starting dante you know from having a good position a good job opening lots of venues to actually taking the ownership on yourself um, yeah, it was, um, you know, it was an interesting time. It was 2015 and, uh, and, uh, I'd been with Avrico for four and a half years and, um, we were doing all sorts of amazing things. We'd just opened Saxon and Prol in Moscow and we were working on the Ritz in Berlin and we'd opened a restaurant in Napa and it'd been an amazing four years. And I was, um, flying around the place doing all these, these fantastic projects. And, um, you know, my, my partner at the time, Natalie, um, said, I never see you, you know, I, um, um, you know, we never spend any time together. You're spending two and a half, three weeks on the road every month. And, you know, I want to start a family and, um, you know, and I want to, and I want to, I want our lives to be uh, more involved with each other. And, and, and at the time I was so into this amazing job that I had that I was like, what do you mean? Everything's great. Um, <laughs> you know, we're flying around the world all the time. Um, um, you know, but, she was she was so right and um um we so we decided that we were going to pursue a project because we wanted to start a family and the only way that we could really um uh co-parent in the way that we wanted to and also um spend the time with each other we wanted to was to do a project together and i think um you know that's definitely a risk for a couple to jump into a, uh, doing a, a business together and um uh, there's a lot of unknown but i mean you know we kind of ran our lives together so why not try to uh, why, not, why not extend that to business and and um um so we made you know we made the decision to find something and and um we uh we looked at a number of venues and the first venue we looked at uh we were very close to finalizing um and on the day before uh we were going to sign the paperwork he, he sold it to somebody else um which i'm grateful for because um uh, it's now one of my favorite restaurants in the city. Uh, and secondly, we wouldn't have um, come across Cafe Dante if we, if we, if we'd signed the paperwork to take that spot. Um, um, and so we found, we found this off market deal on the Google street, uh, where the operator, um, Mario Flotter had had Cafe Dante for the last 43 years and, and he wanted to sell, but he wanted to see the brand continue. He didn't, he didn't want to see it disappear. And, uh, at the time, 
Magnolia Bakery, uh, was, which is the cupcake store, was pushing um, to take it over and put cupcake store in there. And, and he met with us and, and we um, told him that we wanted to see the brand live on and, and uh, we wanted to obviously reinvent it a little bit. And, uh, and so, you know, as long as we met his price and, and we're able to sort of um, uh, do a deal with him, he would be happy to sell it to us. And so, um, um, you know, being Australian and, and uh, I think in Australia we're influenced so strongly by the, the great Italian and Greek communities we have there, for, you know, in terms of coffee and the local deli- local delicatessen and things like that. It made sense for us to try to do like a an all-day Italian cafe or concept um, and this was the opportunity for us to, to do it in a legacy historical um, New York um, uh, location. Um, and so... Um, we took it over and, and, uh, and <laughs> I think we signed the paperwork in, um, the start of March and Natalie was pregnant, uh, by the end of April. So <laughs> we started the business, <laughs> the business and the family like within a month of each other. So yeah. wow. <laughs> when, yeah. when you were first looking for venues, did you have in mind of opening something which would have been Italian inspired? Did you have a theme in mind or? No, do you know, it, it was probably more lack of confidence in ourselves and thinking, um, what are two Australians going to do in New York that's any different to anywhere else? And how are we going to make a splash? And, 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 and being immigrants, um, you know, we realized that the, the, the biggest brand in New York is New York itself. And that was something that had drawn us to the city. And, and we thought, well, how do we, how do we capitalize on that? And um, um, I think that the, like that taking over of um, a, a legacy venue in the city that had been here for a hundred years was the opportunity to, to leverage the New York brand in a way um, that we wouldn't have been able to do if we were just starting out of the gates by ourselves. And so, yeah. so the focus was much more on, um, you know, how do we, how do we pay homage and pay respect to this um, legacy um, in a way that, is true to the people that love coming here every day and have come here for 30 years and, and is also true to our, our beliefs in, in the way that food and beverage and hospitality should be created um, and how do we take it to the next level combining those two together. How do you, how do you maintain that focus without letting what's actually going on around you get in the way without, without it feeling overwhelming? Because I can imagine there's a level of... Uh, responsibility at the time because you've got this like you said it's a legacy venue that's the first thing then you've got uh, the family unit the work-life balance all of the reasons that you're trying to put this in place how do you how do you maintain that internally and just keep that kind of ticking over without it letting all kind of take take over yeah it's a great great question (laughs) um yeah um i mean at the time you know it's uh um I think that from, I mean, obviously it's, it's a multi-part uh, uh, question, you know, yeah. but from the, firstly from the professional standpoint in terms of the business, um, you know, we, we really believed in ourselves and we believed in, we believed in um, uh, what we could create. And when we took over the, 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 the cafe initially, there was articles coming out saying, oh, the end of Cafe Dante, some Australians are going to, turn it into avocado toast and flat whites and, <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. And there was a, there was a photo of me and, and I was like, Oh, from my rockful days where I looked like a, like a corporate, you know, 
um, some guy, like, I don't know, it, it was just all kind of all muddled and, 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 you know, we were, we felt a bit cheated by that, I guess. And, and then we had customers coming in saying, I've been coming here for 30 years and what have you done with the place? And I remember when, and, da, da, da. and, and so, you know, every time these people would come in, which at the time in the first six months felt like they were coming in every day, we were like, Oh, come on in, try the tiramisu, try the coffee, try Negroni. You know, we're really, we really tried to win them over and, and um, it was a really difficult time, but it was, we were so proud of what we had achieved just by getting open that we really had to make it work, you know? Um, and um, um, funnily enough, you know, over, especially after the first six months, people started coming in and saying, you know, ah, oh, I've been coming here for 30 years and nothing's changed. <laughs> you know, it's just people just didn't like the idea of change at the time. But then once it kind of settled down, they were kind of very, very um, supportive of it. And and I think that the, the fact that it was either Natalie or myself there every day, um, really for the first year, um, set the standards and the culture of the restaurant from an operational standpoint, but then also enabled us to build the rapport with the community. So everyone on the block that came in every day knew us and, and they knew the owners by face and by name and, and we created friendships. And, and that community, incredibly, is what I saw and the same people that I connected with um, throughout the last six months during COVID when, once again, we were the, you know, we were the, the primarily the only two there uh, through periods of that stretch and the same people were coming down and supporting us like they had when we first opened. So, you know, that was foundationally was so important to our business. Um, um, but then, you know, to the second part of your question at the time, um, you know, Natalie was pregnant and, and we had our first child on the way. And I think that there was such a sense of new beginnings from the, from the business standpoint and, and the family standpoint that, um, uh, I don't know, you almost find a fifth year, I guess, you know, you, you, you know, everything kind of falls into context. I mean, Damien, obviously you're, you're probably in that world at the moment. I was listening earlier to a podcast <laughs> that Natalie did and uh, the last part of the pregnancy <laughs> was pretty stressful by all accounts. And oh, do you know, it's funny. One of our, one of our friends uh, uh, said to us and they've been coming, Natalie didn't want anyone to know she was pregnant because she didn't want to, you know, she didn't want to be judged for, running around on a restaurant floor and, and being pregnant and she just wanted to like she didn't want to have to engage in in the conversation like you're pregnant you shouldn't be working right now so it was the middle of summer uh, towards the end of summer august and she's still wearing like a scarf and like a like a sweater to try to cover up her stomach uh, um uh, uh you know and and one of our friends is like i knew she was pregnant at that time but um um yeah look i mean it was it was it was uh it was a, a hairy moment and, and i think that the hardest thing for us was probably um, trying to celebrate and enjoy that special time between the two of us and our family where we were completely exposed to the business because we lived and breathed the business, you know, and it was an extension of everything about us, you know. Um, and so, you know, we really kept the pregnancy quiet for a long, long time because it was that special thing that nobody else in the business had access to you know they had so much access to us and so it was kind of our thing that we celebrated between the two of us and so obviously um when noah grace was born um um it, that i don't know that that family life the separation of the family life and the work life became so important and um and and and, and continues to be that way it's um, it's incredible you managed to to find that balance though um and that's one of the biggest hurdles i think for for anyone that works in this industry for regardless of what level 
within the industry that they work in, that's, that's always something that people struggle with is finding that work-life balance and yeah, a testament to, yeah. to both of you, man, for, for being able to do that. It's, uh, it's incredible. Well, I mean, yeah. And it, well, thank you. For, thank you for, you know, I guess the, um, I think the interesting thing for Natalie and I has been that, you know, I have, I learned more and more about her and, and about what she's capable of and, and that, you know, still today, every day in terms of what we do with our business. And that's so inspiring for, for, for the business and also for, you know, for our, for my relationship with her, you know, I, I w- we wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to, we wouldn't be able to do any of anything of what we've created without, without, um, um, the creative drive of what, what Natalie's done, uh, despite, being pregnant twice and having two, two children through the development of this brand. Um, you know, I can't imagine doing it with anybody else. And, and I think that, um, um, that enduring inspiration is, is, you know, I can't, you know, I, I couldn't recommend higher going into business with your partner, uh, based on my experience, um, working with her. You talk about developing the brand. So is it this year you opened up the second venue right before the lockdown? How, how, how was that for you guys? Well, funnily enough, we were meant to be, we were meant to open this venue last year, uh, which was right at the time when our second daughter was due to be born. So it was like, whenever <laughs> there was a new restaurant coming, there was a new baby coming. So, um, so initially we were grateful that the business, that the project had been delayed because having a new child in a new restaurant is never easy, let alone a second time around. Um, but we were delayed and, and, um, um, construction and, and also I guess you know just the realities of um, building out in New York City and we finally got to a point where we were ready to open at the start of this year in February and um, we've done a couple of trainings and and and, uh, and obviously we got shut down um, by the city or the restaurants and um, yeah it was a pretty unusual time um, we had uh, hired the staff and, and everybody had been working at um, the original location to get up trained up and we we're running heavy on stuff there and then we'd obviously started getting set up um, at the new location Dante West Village uh, and the decision to shut everything down I, I don't know it was it wasn't a disappointment as such as it was it was it was just a like a stark new reality that we had to deal with and and um, um, I think that that transition uh, to to what was next, you know, we didn't know what was next. So, you know, we were just really taking it day by day and there was um, no, there was no comprehension of really what was to come. Hmm. How do you feel that the US government or kind of, um, I guess we're talking about states and the mayor's office dealt with the situation? Because in London, there was so much miscommunication there yeah. was a lack of information that yeah people were just lined how was yeah. it for you guys well look it started out it, it was very confusing i mean like at a macro sense i felt like we lived we were living in a war in a, a war time you know every day um you know we were trying to catch up with shifts and adjustments and 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 and, and announcements in terms of what we're meant to be doing um and trying to adapt our business at, at, to that. But I mean, I think, you know, um, you know, if I was to speak specifically about some key points, you know, we got shut down um, on the Saturday, I think it was March 12th or something like that. Um, and on the Tuesday morning, or the, and, and we closed our restaurant on the Sunday, we, we, we furloughed all our staff um, on the Monday. So that's Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And then on the Tuesday morning, the governor announced that we would be able to start to do cocktail 
delivery um, and takeout. And basically anything you've produced inside at the venue, um, you'd be able to do for delivery and takeout. And um, that was like a life raft. You know, somebody had thrown us a, like, oh, wow, okay, maybe maybe we don't have to just lock the doors. Um, and, um, you know, we had these um, uh, coffee cups that I had made that said, next time join us for a Negroni to sell for our to-go coffees so that people, when they got a coffee, they would think, oh, I'll come back and have a Negroni next time. And so I said to Natalie, we could use these for actually Negronis if they're doing to-go. And then we had um, these great little stickers that were made for pop-ups we were doing in New Orleans that said one for the road and we'd put them on a plastic cup. So when people finished their drink in the bar in New Orleans, they'd be able to take it on the road and walk down the street with it. So we had these two vessels. And so on the Tuesday, we said, let's start doing pick up and delivery uh, and see how it goes. Um, and, you know, we'd laid off 49 staff on the Monday. And then by the end of that week, I'd hired back um, close to 20 staff. Um, and so, you know, at that point we were, we would, we didn't, didn't know if we meant we should be open. We didn't know if we were like, you know, we we're trying to understand the restrictions and, and how to, how to deal with COVID um, and, and, um, and, what we did know at the time was, you know, we had um, health insurance for our staff and coming into a pandemic, you know, that was, that's a huge, coming from Australia where um, health in, health coverage and, and obviously in the UK health coverage is, 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 is free and, and, you know, the NHS system is so incredible in America, it's just not. And going into a pandemic, we want to make sure that we continue to provide healthcare for our staff. And we couldn't do that if we were closed. We had a number of staff who were on visas um, who would have to leave the country within two weeks if we closed, and we had uh, numerous numbers of them. Um, and, you know, we had some members of our team who weren't able to apply for uh, unemployment insurance and so forth, and they had families, and they were just, they're, they're, they're breadwinners, and they, you know, all their revenue for any money coming into their family would stop. And so this Cocktail to Go program that the governor put in place was, um, was the shining star that kind of uh, enabled us to keep going. And, and later that week, that first week that we were going, um, someone contacted us from Lenox Hill Hospital and asked if we could provide 50 meals for the doctors and nurses up there. And um, that, that, that enabled me to bring back a couple of the chefs that day to put together the 50 meals. Um, and the following week, they rang and asked if we could do it three more days. And so I brought back... Um, most of my kitchen um, and um, customers were coming and buying cocktails and saying, how can we help you? How can we support you? Um, and I, I said, well, I'm doing hospital meals. If you could pay for them they're at, at cost price, it, it will enable us to keep providing meals to the hospitals. It enables me to keep hiring and employing staff. Um, and um, we started receiving donations from our local community to, to do these hospital meals. And, and I guess through those, through, initially through those two programs, uh, we were able to keep the business going. Um, you know, we ended up doing over 5,000 uh, meals to all the hospitals in the New York City area over that period. Um, and, uh, and, and we started to do what we called a family meal. So any out-of-work hospitality staff um, could come down and get a hot meal at uh, 5 o'clock every day, whether it be a bottle of pasta or, you know, what have you, because so many people are out of work and not making any money. And so we had that program running as well. And so, look, the initial, that, so to go back to your first question, that initial decision to, by, by the governor to enable us to do, to go cocktails, kick-started our business again um, in a way that um, was created in such a positive way. Um, but having said that, um, 
you know, it has changed dramatically as the as the pandemic has gone on, gone on. You know, and and, the, and you know, um, I'm very grateful that we're now allowed to consider indoor dining at the end of this month. But you know, we have uh, we've 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 seen. I think there's 35,000 restaurant licenses in New York, and at the moment, only 10,000 of those are open. So we've already seen two thirds of the restaurants in New York who have been closed for over six months. Um, and I think that a series of that is is some bad decision making um, on, on behalf of the mayor and 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 the governor. And I think that uh, definitely things could have been done better um, after that initial decision. It's real, man, isn't it? It's like it's just affecting everyone everywhere, and yeah. like, and we can be guilty of kind of living in our own bubbles sometimes, and. And just just listening to, yeah. to to the way it's affecting you guys and everything else on on your, in your part of the world, it's just really kind of brought it home again. If I'm honest, um, it's just just kind of like yeah. how far reaching this is for everybody. Well, I mean, the thing for me, being uh, again Australian and, and having grown up in a universal healthcare co- uh, country, um, you know, the realization that there's not that safety net is yeah. so stark in America. Um, you know, social security and Medicare in, in in the US just doesn't mean the same to what it does for somebody living in Australia or the UK even. And yeah. Um, and in the in the midst of a pandemic, a health, a public health crisis, um, uh, you see that um, that uh, uh, structure, that that civic structure, isn't there to to catch the people who can't afford to. Um, uh, you know, take out uh, what is essentially private health insurance, and and or who lose their jobs. You know, and it's it's terrifying. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, it's been it's been a big learning, um, um, without question. And I think, you know, I look. I mean, it's catastrophic. There's no there's no other word for it uh, for our industry. Um, but I will say that um, there's been a lot. There have been silver linings, and there are great positivities to come out of it as well. And I think that. I think that um, um, you know, without without focusing um, on so many of the unfortunate um, consequences of, of what's happened, you know, I think that we've seen our industry come together in a way that I've never seen before. And I think that there have there have been um, uh, friendships um, and um, uh, initiatives that have been sparked out of the result of this that I that I think will be game changers in the way that we uh, continue to operate into the next. Um, chapter of uh, restaurants, bars, hospitality around the world, and and I'm I'm very excited by that. And I think that um, you know I think for the people that are lifers in this industry, um, you know, there's a lot of great things to come. Yeah, I don't disagree with you, man. Some of the issues that have come out of this and the way that this industry innovates and evolves constantly is is always like incredible to watch. I mean, you and I have been obviously in the industry a long time, but it's still it's still nice to be surprised by the industry. Um, and especially now, it's just been a pleasure to to watch the industry on a global level, not only come together, but the way it's innovated itself and changing itself, and it's so fluid in the way the way that it moves, mm. um, and how people have found these little pockets to kind of to shine. Really, yeah, like you say, it's it's easy to to focus on the the, the stuff that isn't going right, but it, it's also really nice to be able to talk about the, the positives as well um, and what's out there. Yeah. And I think that, like, I remember there was a whole lot of, um, especially in the US, the media, you know, the restaurant industry is dead and no one's going to go back to restaurants anymore and, and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I think, um, you know, two things. Firstly, the people that run 
restaurants and bars and, and uh, around the world are some of the most creative, hardworking, inspiring people um, uh, in any industry. And that's one of the reasons why I got into the industry and why I love it. You know, that's the first thing. And, and secondly, um, you know, it doesn't matter if you're celebrating a birthday, an anniversary, a new, a new book deal, um, catch up with a friend, um, there's all, you're always going to come together over great food and great drinks. And it doesn't matter uh, in what context that is. So that hospitality will never die. Um, and I think that keeping that front and center of your mind as we go into this next evolution of what we're doing is really exciting because people still, that you cannot compare having a Zoom happy hour to sitting around a table and sharing <laughs> in the brownie. Like, yeah. uh, trust no me, I've, I've really given it, I've tried it a lot. You talk about Negronis and you've mentioned it quite a few times um, in this in the show. Tell me, tell us about the love of spritz and kind of your Negroni sessions because they take up quite a part of your menu. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, and when we took over Dante, there was this, obviously, this uh, Italian lineage and, and, and importance, uh, to, to historical importance to the brand. And, and you know, at the time um, in 2015, the Negroni was definitely uh, rising to popularity, but it was always been a bartender's favourite. And, um, uh, you know, it was a drink that we, we really enjoyed drinking um, uh, in our off hours. And, you know, I, we've been working on a, like a, a great drinks program at Saxon and Parole. Um, and, um, and I think that, you know, the, the evolution of the way that we were drinking at the time was leaning more towards lower ABV, less citrus, because there was so much citrus in these culinary drinks. And, and and um and more focus on the spritz and the negronis and that's just what we loved and and there was a perfect lineage between that passion um and what we wanted to achieve at dante and i think that i think that one of the most appealing aspects of that aperitivo um culture is that it is a little bit more refined than um than uh you know the the aspects of the american drinking culture you know we're trying to tie into this european sensibility i guess of the all-day cafes that you might see in paris or or somewhere in the north of italy and and um and we really wanted to try to try to try to capture that that essence into dante and and we wanted to i guess use the the negroni and and then the spritz as kind of our uh, our gateway into that um um and so we we positioned the negroni sessions as uh um, obviously a drinks menu that we would offer throughout throughout the day but we, we offered it at it at a discounted price uh, between the hours of 3 and 6 p.m um, to kind of highlight this aperitivo hour so that people could come in and, and 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 enjoy one of these great cocktails and maybe learn a little bit more about bitters and vermouth and, and different variations of the negroni um, at a time that in america you'd usually associate with happy hour um, and you know, happy hour has certain connotations um, that uh, that are different to maybe that uh, more enlightened idea of uh, aperitivo in the golden hour in the south of Italy. Um, but we wanted to try to position it at that time of the day to kind of highlight uh, what an amazing cultural experience it is to be able to finish work and have some tramezzini and cicchetti with friends and share a Negroni, and then go on with your evening, go home, see your wife, or, or go out to dinner and. Um, um, I think that idea uh, just blended so beautifully with the historical aspect of what we would um, had inherited at Dante. So it was like a really nice fit. Um, and like I said, the you know at the time people were really interested in the Negroni. They'd heard about it, they were reading about it, and they would we'd get we'd get groups of people coming and sitting down and saying, "I want to try Negroni." And um, 
and you know and, and we'd serve them their first negroni and and it might not be what they expected but uh inherently people really you know really love them so um i mean i've got i've kind of got a question um here in respects to because we talked about culture in the industry and globally and how everything's connected and obviously your journey um from australia to london and then back and then over to new york and obviously being an australian but where does your where does your heart sit now um not that not not that you consider yourself to be an australian or american um but where, where does your where does your heart sit now what what part of the world are you in that's interesting um I, you know, I, I, I do go back to a feeling, uh, such an overwhelming feeling I had when I first moved back from London, um, you know, when I was in my early 20s. Um, and I guess I had a realisation that the thing I loved about the hospitality industry was that it totally transcended um, uh, uh, cultures, boundaries, uh, nation, national borders, and it didn't matter where you were in the world, everybody came together over great food or great drinks and and um that international aspect of the industry has been one of the main driving aspects that i love that i love so much about it and it's what has kept me so engaged in it um and um i have to say that i love new york i you know it's definitely home now um obviously i have two beautiful daughters who are both born here um who i'm trying desperately to make sure that they still say um rock melon not cantaloupe um <laughs> uh, you know, stick to some of their Australian uh, or English values. Um, um, but the international uh, uh, prospect of living in New York is so exciting to me because it's just as easy to, to, to be able to engage in things we're passionate about in the hospitality industry with a quick, you know, with a quick skip to Europe or um, South America or, or so many other parts of the world. And I think that, I think that that is so, that is still so inspiring to me. And and I learn so much every time I'm able to to engage in one of those um, trips. Um, And I find that in New York, there's a consumer base that is um, mature enough to really be open to a lot of those, a lot of those traditional um, uh, ideas and values that you can bring back into the city here. Um, And, and, and they want to support it. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess my heart, um, is is uh, you know I guess I'm I guess I'm loving New York and I can see that we will continue to be a part of New York for for the foreseeable future. But um, yeah. Australia's home. Australia's definitely home, and uh, <laughs> and it's 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 hard to not be allowed to travel there at the moment, especially. Yeah, I bet. I bet. When was the last time you got to go? Oh, I, I'm. You know what? I haven't been for I haven't been for almost a year now uh, because we were gearing up for the opening. Um, yeah, and, and obviously we weren't travelling too much with, the, with Millie being so young. She was only um, six months old when we last went. And um, uh, then with COVID, you know, now we have to go into two weeks quarantine if we want to get in, if we can get in. So, yeah. That's crazy, man. That's crazy. So, it, yeah. I mean, it sounds like you've always taken the time out to to go to other places and different parts of the world and take your time to, to study them and learn from them and, and watch and, and, and bring those ideas back. But what was it like for you when the world was watching you? And we're talking about obviously the top 50 now. Um, when, when, the, when the tables kind of got turned, because you, you sound like your journey has always been about self-discovery, but doing that through taking the time uh, to, to travel wherever you need to travel to, 
to, to learn what you need to learn and, and obviously hone your own skills. But all of a sudden now, everyone's looking at you through through this uh, top 50 lens. What, what was that like for yourself? Um, yeah, uh, exhilarating, I guess, would be the first, the first my first um, thought. I think that... Um, or memory, I should say, but I mean, I look. It, it came with it came with uh, you know a huge responsibility. I think you know we Im- immediately felt um, uh, this. I mean, after the award was announced, the next day, you know, the the bar was swamped um, and it remained <laughs> that way. Um, you know, and and people were walking in with a, a whole different perspective on both sides. You know, our regulars were were coming in and and struggling to get their usual spot at the bar or or get at the table that they'd so used to been getting yeah. because because we were swamped that was that was one thing and we and we you know that they're our core business and and we wanted to make sure that we continue to look after them but it was really difficult um but the second side of that is that new new patrons coming to experience Dante for the first time were walking in saying well this is uh the number one bar um and and they were critiquing every aspect of it at that level as they should um, you know, and, and so we had a whole new level of expectation to meet and then to exceed. Um, and we always, we talk a lot about meeting, meeting people's expectations. And that goes back to that idea of, um, a competency based binary system where we're making sure that we're fulfilling their basic expectations, um, and then exceeding them. So they have a good time. Um, um, you know, and, and, and but the bar got raised so high, right? So we had to raise everything we did to meet that bar. And then we still, uh, in the way that we ran um, our business model, we still wanted to be able to exceed those expectations above that new that new level um, that people were walking in with. And um, so, yeah, so, I mean, it, 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 we just had to, you know, we've, we worked so hard um, to get, to get to that point and we just had to dig in and, and work a lot harder actually um, um, with that new responsibility. And I think, you know, somebody, somebody said to me, um, uh, it was it was right before Thanksgiving, so I guess about a month after the awards were announced, and yeah, uh, they'd come they'd come they were visiting New York, and it was the first time to Dante, and they'd come three times to Dante on that trip, and it was the night before they left, and they said to me, um, you know, we've had such a great time in New York, um, but we had to come back. We really wanted to come back to Dante to celebrate our last evening here because. You know, we, it just feels like an extension of our home and we just love being here, wow. you know, and, and that was that was the greatest compliment for me. You know, it was not about I had to come back because of that spirit. So I had to come back because of the Papadelli or, or I, it was because they, they felt emotionally connected to it in a way that they chose to spend their last night with us. And, and that was um, em- emblematic of what we, we've been trying to achieve. I mean, thank thank you for the answer there. Um, and, and some of the, the things that you kind of, said in respect to the level of responsibility that you feel and not only just meeting your customer base and expectations but having to to exceed it and i think sometimes you, you, some people want to chase that number one kind of spot and they want to be known as the best in the world but obviously you're there now and it's and it's i think some people don't realize that it actually does get harder it does get more difficult and you have to kind of maintain that consistency and not only just maintain it like you said but you have to you have to exceed it almost. You have to become better than you are or were. I mean, is that? Are you aware of that every single day that you you come into work? Now, is does that still is that still there? Is that has that become a negative? I mean, I understand winning the award was, must have been an amazing experience for you, and and being voted the best in the world, it's got to be an incredible experience. But is there a weight that comes with that? 
uh, yeah, I think there's definitely a, res- a, a big responsibility. Um, I think that um, uh, the responsibility is to, firstly, to, to, to the staff and to the members of the team that put in so much work in, in, in every detail of what, what we do. You know, I think we have a responsibility as, as owners to make sure that we're supporting them in doing their job um, it, it, and, and they're comfortable in doing their job because it's, it's, it is a lot of extra work. Um, and, um, um, but I think that ultimately the, uh, you know, I think that, I think that the, the pursuit of excellence in what we do is never ending anyway. I, I think that whether, whether, whether it would be, uh, because of an accolade or not, I mean, like we're constantly striving to be better, um, and constantly striving to be better today than we were yesterday in terms of um the service that we give people the way that we look after the way that we look after our guests and our staff and 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 the quality of the food and the things we put on the table and i think regardless of of any of those accolades we still want to be able to push we still want to be able to to be better um and so it does come with a certain weight or responsibility but i think that if you're if you're that way inclined and you want to we create um, a hospitality experience and it really is a hospitality experience because it's a sum of the parts. It's a sum of the food, the drinks, the, the design, the music, the, the, the staff interaction with the customers. Like if you're really going to pursue a hospitality experience, you can never rest on your laurels. You have to, you have to keep striving. And, and, and um, um, I think if anything, it's, it's one of the greatest um, motivators to, to, <laughs> to, um, to, to grow. Going back to the work-life balance, you know, you talked about wanting to have this family-run business because you were away a lot, traveling a lot, but yet running a restaurant is so time-consuming. How do you guys manage, um, A, now with this accolade on top and wanting to strive for excellence during a pandemic, uh, being responsible, owners looking after your staff, you know, there's a lot going on there. Yeah, look, I, I'm very lucky to have a partner who is um, um, incredibly uh, articulate when it comes to um, – she, she's incredible at prioritising and, and she helps me every day um, find that balance between um, making sure that we're addressing the issues that we need to tackle on that day, whether it be personal in the, with our family or with the business. And, and, and I think that um, – making time to, to pay attention to that um, and, and to pay attention to each other um, has, it is and has been the biggest learning, you know. And, um, you know, I think, I think that um, the kids also keep us, give us a pretty solid reality check, but um, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, don't, you, don't, you can't really negotiate with them, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But, you, you know, I think that as, uh, the, the great thing has been is as our relationship business relationship has evolved you know it, it we've created uh, more time and more space for in our for our personal life and you just have to have, you just have to be able to compartmentalize you know i mean i think that i will say that the great thing about working together is when it's very stressful at work we're both we're both in it together working through the problems but when when the stress is off and, and we're in a good place we're both in a good place together you know it's not like Natalie's work life is um, uh, on its own trajectory and mine is. And sure. if you, yeah, you know, if I'm stressed out and she's in a good place, we might not have that time to connect, but at least we can problem solve and, and go through the journey together. And so I am incredibly grateful for that. Um, and I think that that is actually um, the platform for why we're able to keep growing in the way that we are. Yeah, that's brilliant. It's really cool. Honestly, that, that's amazing. Like, honestly, it's amazing. Amazing what you guys have achieved yeah. and how you've achieved yeah. it, the journey you've gone through and, 
and 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 the fact that you're just kind of like punching through regardless of what's going on around you globally yeah. and locally man right damien where are we right. going next yes yeah, so um <laughs> so we have these little segments that we do at the end with our guests so um if you hadn't heard before um so my background is in music production so I'm a songwriter and so I love music. So I always like to ask guests about right. musical choices. So when you're starting a shift, what do you, what would you play to kind of get in the mood, get the, the staff kind of pumping? I, I don't know why, but for, for whatever reason, and, and this probably isn't very much musical choice, but the staff at, at our new restaurant have just been caught in a crazy 80s party mix every <laughs> oh, time yes. they start their shift recently. Well, more like in, ex- in excess and, <laughs> and probably Michael Jackson. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that is not and, bad, not bad. <laughs> any particular tune that, uh, that comes on regularly? For some reason, Suicide Blonde by In Excess seems to be coming on recently. It's a tune. It's a tune. Yeah. It's a good tune. And um, closing down as well. So, guests have gone, you're cleaning up. Anything else in particular? Oh, yeah. At the moment, there's been a, 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 a great, great um, amount of 90s hip-hop, and, which I think has got a lot to do with um, a lot of proud New Yorkers enjoying Tribe Called Quest and oh, yes. um, Bella Soul and, and yes. you know, some of, the, some of the, uh, the great New York um, hip-hop anthems from the 90s, which, which we've all been enjoying during backup, yeah. 90s hip-hop, that's my jam. Um, I'm in. So, I'm, I'm signed too up. Good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can come and help clean the bar if you like. Rick. Oh yeah. man, if you if you're playing <laughs> '90s hip hop, I'll clean the entire bar on my own. I'm not even worried about that. Notorious, <laughs> B, notorious Big. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. You fly me over there. I won't even charge you for my time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, love it. Group. Over to you. Uh, so, so um, Damien's obviously the, the, the music man. Uh, he, he's the gentleman that, that loves the tunes, man. Um, but from my point of view, I, I, I talk about um, I talk about the drink side of things and, and the spirits and such. So, if you had a if you could have any speed run, and I appreciate this. We're talking about your venue anyway, and this is kind of your opportunity. Uh, but taking away things like all the contracts and all the other stuff. Um, but if you could have your own speed rail that consisted of any five liquid, um, any spirits at all, what, what would it be for you, man? Well, I have to say I'm, I, I'm a big lover uh, and supporter of um, the work that Simon Ford has done, um, not only because I, I hold him in high regard as a, as a person, but I, I think his, his products have great integrity. So um, I think Ford's gin would find, it, find a place in there. Um, um, you know, uh, oh, what a, and where do we go from here? Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> working with um, working with some uh, also, I guess, some small um, craft uh, distillers here in New York. Another another one of my favourites uh, is a is a beautiful rye whiskey out of the New York Distilling Company from Alan Katz called the Ragtime Ragtime Rye. Um, and again, I think it's beautiful liquid, but uh, you know, I think that the, the spirits made with such wonderful integrity. Um, um, and let me think what else you know what I've really been enjoying this uh, well new to our venue at least this uh, new G4 tequila I don't know if you've been able to enjoy some of, no. some of their products beautiful Blanco tequila with this wonderful wonderful taste palette great guys um, super tasty um, so I'd have to add that into the, into the rail and, and for, for whatever reason I don't know why tequila and mezcal seem to be the drink of COVID. Maybe for every reason, tequila and mezcal are the drink of COVID. But I think we would um, 
end up with like a like a beautiful Banyas uh, bottle of mezcal or something in there as yeah, well. Yeah, man. Um, um, and then um, I don't know. Maybe we'd put like something something interesting and obscure in there, like a, a bottle of Midori or something. Yes, <laughs> yes. I knew we were going to get on. I knew it as soon as we said hello. I knew we were going to get on. <laughs> Love a Midori service. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we just did. I just we just did a drink for the U.S. Open, which was uh, completely influenced by the old Midori illusions that they used to serve us back in oh. Sydney in the late nineties. <laughs> nice man. So nineties hip hop and Midori illusions. What more do you need? I'm in. Good. <laughs> uh, uh, love it. <laughs> just pay me a Midori. That's fine. I'll clean the bar. Yeah, fantastic. No worries. <laughs> your, shift, your shift starts at eleven p.m. every night, and you'll be welcome with a bowl of Midori. Oh, <laughs> It's a dream come true right there. <laughs> you heard it first, guys. You heard it first. <laughs> so where, where now, Damien? So the last one is the speed round. So we're going to give you uh, 30 seconds and Roop's going to ask you uh, a series of uh, multiple choice or it's kind of one or the other options. Um, it'll kind of be self-explanatory as we go through it. Um, so right. I will count you down and then I will keep an eye on the clock. I'm going to try and be as quick as I can for you. I'm going to try and be as quick as I can, and I'll, and I'll, I'll try and uh, be as clear for you as I can. Is okay? So, David, right. if you want to, if you want to count us into this, how, yeah. how long have we got? So, thirty seconds. Thirty seconds. Right here we go. Three, okay. Three, two, one, go. Negroni or spritz? Negroni. Scotch or bourbon? Bourbon. Tequila mezcal. Mezcal. Crushed, cubed, or shaved for ice. Crushed. Danger Mouse or Inspector Gadget? Inspector Gadget. <laughs> bitters or mixes? <laughs> oh, bitters. Fresh or dehydrated? Fresh. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Stop. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> <laughs> I might want to change my ice response, but I'll stick with crushed. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair, that's fair. Cool. <laughs> uh, it's uh, been a real, awesome. uh, real pleasure uh, to have your time. Um, I've realised that yeah. you know you're going to have service and a lot of prep to be done. But um, it's been wonderful to learn your journey and um, everything about Dante. How, how's it been for yourself? How's it been for you? Uh, the, 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 this has been fantastic. Um, I really, you guys, you guys have been wonderful, welcoming, supportive, and and I've really enjoyed our time together today. Thank you so much for taking the time and, 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 and doing the work to, uh, I guess, to understand the brand before we even had the opportunity to talk. So, you know, that's, it's really, it's, it's, um, uh, it's refreshing and very enjoyable. It makes it very easy um, to be able to talk about things when you guys are so clued in. So thank you so much. Right, that's, thank all you. Good. That's, that's all Damien. I don't take any credit for that. So. <laughs> he's, too, he's too busy playing Grand Theft Auto. I'm on Grand Theft Auto. I love it. <laughs> no, no, thank you. And uh, hopefully when we can travel again, I and mean, if we find ourselves over in New York, then uh, we'll definitely come and say hi and meet uh, for a, a Negroni. Time to close down, my man. Let's let's do this. Indeed. So, uh, everybody, thank you for tuning in. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Drop us a message. Let us know what you thought. If there's anything that you want to know from us or future guests, and we'll catch you next time. Yeah. Once again, man. Thank you very much for all of you guys taking the time to listen, uh, Mr. Lyndon Pride. Thank you very much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, and all of you out there, look after yourselves and each other. Love you. Bye.